to turn with me again to Colossians 1. Colossians 1. And we'll reread part of that portion of Scripture that Donald read earlier to us. And a few more verses besides. It's on page 1182 in the Pew Bible. Colossians 1, and we'll begin to reread at verse 15. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Amen. This is the Word of God, and may He help you to understand it um, as I seek His assistance to help me to explain it. Uh, We don't have much of the background of the forming of the church in Colossae. Uh, We read earlier on there that we know that Epaphras was involved at some stage in teaching the believers there the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we don't actually know who planted it or when it was planted. Um, it took, uh, it lies, Colossae, the town of Colossae lies on the path that Paul and Silas took on Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, we can see that. I think there may be an arrow up here. There you go. It lies somewhere about there. But beyond that, we can't speculate. Uh, although, Colossae would later become a large, wealthy, and extremely influential city within the Roman Empire. At the time that Paul is writing, um, somewhere around AD 62, probably a prisoner in Rome by this time, he's writing to the believers in Colossae because he's heard uh, something of their plight. It's just a humble market town. It lies approximately 100 miles east of Ephesus. Its nearest neighbors are Laodicea, which Jesus writes to in Revelation, but 10 miles away and Herapolis, um, about 13 miles away there on the map. So that gives you an idea of where it's located. And although the town uh, may have been quite insignificant in and of itself, Paul's reason for writing to the believers who reside there is certainly not unimportant or insignificant. We don't know the precise nature, uh, but there is a teaching, a, a system of teaching of false doctrines and practices that are being spread abroad among the Christian community in Colossae that has now become known as the Colossian heresy. Uh, We don't exactly know what all of the details of that was, but from the letter, we can deduce some of the key issues 
that as Paul refutes the, uh, the, uh, the heresies, that we can um, see why it would have been such a challenge to the believers. And um, he wants to more accurately explain to them the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't think it's too extreme to say that the false teaching, and therefore the false teachers themselves, were threatening the well-being of the church and ultimately jeopardizing the eternal security of anyone who accepted their message. Uh, if you want to read Colossians, um, it's, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. I've left instructions to my family for this section to be preached on at my funeral. Um, and if they can't find anybody to do it, they're just going to play back the DVD from today. And that'll be not um, a dry eye in the house, I would hope, anyway. Uh, but it is. It's, it's just one of the most fascinating books as we look at the centrality and the focus of Jesus. I pray that today that all of us will grasp again something of the vital relationship that we have with him as our Lord and Savior. Now, throughout this letter, there are allusions to the nature of the heresy. And from it, we can deduce, first of all, that it has a strong insistence towards legalism. Uh, Lots of ritual observance of holy days, strong connotations of a Jewish influence of the kind that Jesus, while he was on earth as a human being, challenged and condemned in in the Pharisees. It is religion at its worst. A form of godliness that denies the power, any real power of the Holy Spirit to change and transform disciples into Christ-like character and behavior. Secondly, it also has strong philosophical characteristics. Uh, It's overly concerned with the study and the veneration of angels, uh, uh, practices asceticism to extreme lengths of self-denial. And uh, can I just note that self-denial is a huge different thing from self-control, which is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Many pagan religions practice extreme forms of self-denial. You shall not do this, you shall not do that, you'll deny yourself this and this and this. Uh, Nowhere in Scripture are we taught to deny ourselves in that extreme way, but we are taught to be self-controlled. And that's, that's an attribute of the Holy Spirit's residence in our lives as believers that allows us to keep things away from our lives that would be harmful. There is undoubtedly a pagan element to this heretical teaching, and therefore that threatens the church in Colossae, um, and that can also be true in our day. It's certainly true of some of those of you who have worked in foreign mission fields where the church hasn't already been established, that pagan influences can come in from that culture. But tragically, even in, in, in the sort of new forms of paganism that are around today, The church here in the West is equally threatened, I believe. And there's a third element to the heresy um, that is in many respects a more difficult one to address. It's more difficult because it has a Christian flavor to it. Now, we've already considered that at the heart of this heresy there is a combination of Judaism and paganism, but there is, as Curtis Vaughan in his commentary uh, describes, Uh, something even more incipient and sinister because it wears the mask of Christianity. In other words, it doesn't deny Christ, but it does dethrone him. And you and I will have been taught somewhere along our discipleship that if Christ isn't Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. And there is a lot of truth for us to think about that today as we're challenged by the Word of God. Now, do you know that when someone just plain outright denies Christ, 
that you actually know where you are with them. You know exactly where you stand. I don't believe there's a God. Don't believe in Jesus. You just, you just know exactly where you are with them. But when a church or an individual gives Christ a place, but not the supreme place in their life, then the Christian facade is actually more of a problem than outright hostility and rejection of the gospel message. You and I might be tempted to combat, as I know I would, uh, be uh, tempted to combat this problem uh, of this false knowledge by pretending that we don't know of its existence or opposing it in some sort of uh, damage limitation exercise by not telling our people. Let's keep it from them. But Paul doesn't do that. He's got a better solution. He meets this false knowledge, the Colossian heresy, head-on with an appeal to a fuller or a greater knowledge about Jesus Christ. The false representation is countered by setting out in clear terms the exalted nature and the unrivaled glory and majesty of Christ. And that's what I hope that we'll do today. We've already begun to do that in our worship today, putting Jesus right at the heart of it, focusing on the person of Jesus and exalting him and lifting him up in our worship. And I hope that we can continue to do that as we look together at God's word. Our reading today is focused on exalting Christ, magnifying his glory, and setting him out as the preeminent, supreme Savior and Lord that he is. So Paul is basically saying, Look, I'm well aware of the fact that there is other stuff out there. But of what importance is that to me or to the church? Because we have Jesus. That's why you and I need to rest this morning. We know there's other stuff out there in believing world and in practice world. But why, why, why would any person in this room today be concerned to think about some form of religious practice, some form of paganism, some sort of philosophy that detracts us from focusing on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So I want to look first of all with you at the scale of Christ's supremacy. It's there in verses 15 through 18. I actually thought about doing this during the week, um, but time didn't allow, and uh, we're a bit short-staffed at the moment. I guess it's one of these things that when Andy Prime gets on staff, we'll send him out with a video recorder to do this sort of stuff for us. Um, but I wonder if you walked down Prince's Street and conducted a survey among shoppers and business people and asked them to give a description of Jesus Christ, I wonder what they would say to us. I'd be very surprised, I'm pleasantly surprised, if anyone on the street came up with the sort of summary that Paul gives us here in these four verses. He basically says Christianity and salvation is Jesus plus nothing else. And Paul rightly refutes the false teachers and their system where angelic mediators usurp the place and the function of Christ. And at this, I'm going to get a bit controversial, um, but you know that stuff with Todd Bentley in the Lakeland Revival and tell them about the angel Emma that is not a new heresy. A heresy it is, but there's nothing new about it. It's happening here, right in the first century in Colossae. And in other letters, Paul has had to stress the importance of Christ with specific regard to the sufficiency of his work in salvation, 
But here he finds himself having to affirm what one commentator calls Jesus' cosmic significance. If you didn't hear about it at the time, let me remind you of what Bentley said on air. God, I told them I would need to preach Jesus to them, but God said to me, they already know about Jesus. Tell them about the angel, Emma. And somewhere in the evangelical and charismatic mind should have gone off an alarm bell that says, this guy is a fruit loop, right off the wall. I have very, very sincere Christian friends who say to me things like, but Rodney, there was so much good in that. We were so blessed by some of that stuff. That has its roots through Toronto, right back through the Kansas City prophets, into the very worst stuff that came out of what I actually believe was a good movement when John Wimber was around at the start of the charismatic movement 30 years ago. Got hijacked by a whole lot of people who we just got to be wary in the church of. And it'll resurface again somewhere in the future if the Lord tarries. And Paul's saying, do you know, I'm going to put Jesus and his cosmic significance back on the evangelical map here so that you can understand who the nature of Jesus is. Christ is, first of all, he says, the image of God, verse 15. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. On one occasion when his disciples asked to see the Father, Jesus said that since they had seen him, they already had seen the Father. In John 14, verses 8 through the beginning of 9, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And then Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 4 and 4, he says, the God of this age, just in case there's any ambiguity in your mind about who that is, that's the devil, that's Satan, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what is inferred by the phrase image of God? Well, we mustn't just understand this in a material or a physical sense. It's not that Jesus, that when Jesus was born as a human being, that somehow that made him like the image of God. Remember back in Genesis when God talks with God, he says, let us make mankind, male and female, in our image. So Jesus isn't simply that form of a physical, material, image bearer as you and I are. It's more than that. I like how one commentator describes it. He says his incarnation, that is becoming a human being, did not make him the image of God, but it did bring him as being that image within our grasp. Hitherto, prior to this, we had only been able to see the image of God very marred, very broken, very sinfully affected in human beings. But when Jesus comes, fully man, fully God, he brings the real image of God within our grasp. The original word for image, Greek word, icon, it, it, it expresses two ideas. The first one is just simply that image. It's, it's like the image of the sovereign on a, cone, a coin or the reflection in a mirror. But the second idea, which is, I believe, what Paul's trying to convey here to the Colossian church, uh, is, is like manifestation. It's like more of a reflection, uh, because what Paul is saying here, that in being the very nature of God, that's perfectly revealed in Jesus. The being and the nature of God 
are revealed in Jesus. He's not a representative, but rather he's the real deal when it comes to knowing and experiencing God. And of course, the second idea uh, was much harder for the first century Jews and Gentiles to grasp. And to be quite honest, it's no easier for people of other faiths and none today. And there are uh, there are, uh, and therein lies the root of the heresies put around by Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Muslim, Hindus, Sikhs, and many liberal theologians and pastors. This false view of Jesus has even in, entrenched into the teaching of secret societies like the Masons, where Jesus and other spiritual hierarchies have given equal prominence in the secret codes and the teachings. But they're all false because Jesus has no equal. He is not less, and he is not other than God. Jesus is God. And God chose to reveal himself in human flesh, so he came and lived among us. As the evangelist John tells us in chapter 1 of his gospel, he tabernacled, or he pitched his fleshly tent for a while, so that we could behold his glory, the glory of the only, the one and only begotten son John 1 14 Jesus is also the Lord of creation verse 15 b through 17 not only was he around before and outside creation he's the firstborn Lord over creation because he made it all the stuff that you see the visible stuff and all the stuff that you can't see the invisible stuff who made that well, Jesus did. That's what the Bible's saying here. It was all made by him and for him. The original word that the NIV translates by is actually uh, the word literally in. So it wasn't made just by him in the way that a carpenter would make a chair. It was made in him. The whole universe is made in Jesus. That's how supreme he is. That's how sovereign he is. All of creation occurred within the sphere of Jesus' person and power. You know, if it wasn't for Christ and his creative power, we wouldn't be here. And neither would there be anything else in existence in any form or fashion. The words, all things, denotes the totality of the universe, including all physical and spiritual realities. And the reason that I'm really laboring this today, is that I think sometimes as Christians, we think that somehow God is the one who's responsible for this, and God was somehow responsible for making a Jesus to kind of come as his representative, and that, well, Jesus is really just a really, really, really good human being that is, as the Son of God, able to do stuff um, in order to pay the penalty for our sin, to die sacrificial death on our part, and even now to stand at the right hand of the Father and intercede for us. He's a really, really good human being. And you know, that dethrones him of who he is in the universe. Because all of the created order is made in Jesus, by Jesus, and for Jesus. And the practical implication is simple. There is nothing in existence outside the scope of Jesus' lordship. And this, is, this has implications for us as human beings. 
I'm very grateful to Donald for praying and mentioning to you to pray for my wife, Jeanette, who's got multiple sclerosis. It's a dreadful illness, and, and, and it, I hate it. But it's within the sovereign purposes of Christ. It's not outside his lordship. And so we can trust. Paul is saying, look, if Jesus is in charge of everything, why settle for or focus on some aspect of the all that is under his lordship, like the angels, philosophy, ritual, dietary laws, high days, holy days, when you can know the Lord of it all? So it poses a question for us. Why do people settle for less than Jesus? Let me suggest to you that it's because idol worship is always a much less challenging option to our rebellious, sinful, proud human nature than simply coming face to face with the penetrating, revealing, convicting, and converting power of a holy, all-knowing, all-powerful God. And not only was Jesus Christ before all things, but look at verse 17 there. Because it tells us that he is the cohesion or the glue that holds it all together. Joseph Lightfoot describes Christ here as the principle of cohesion that makes the universe a cosmos rather than a chaos. And I just find that an incredibly comforting thought. For any of us here this morning struggling to make sense of the chaos in our lives, and there's a challenge for you. Is there chaos in your life? Because if there isn't, you're either self-deluded or you've already been made perfect. This life absolutely sucks at times. It's hard. It's difficult. It's fraught with all sorts of perilous dangers and trials. And if you don't see that, you're already made perfect or you're deluded. But it's a comforting thought for those of us who know that there is chaos around us in our lives. Whether our fault, the fault of another, or an unexplained tragedy. Jesus is Lord of it all. Jesus is Lord of it all. So when, maybe like me, you get that dreadful phone call from a family member to say that someone very close to you has been killed in a road accident. You turn to the living God and say, I didn't see this coming, but you did. I trust you. He's the Lord of creation. And if he's part of the creation, all of that seen and unseen stuff, good or bad, then Jesus is in charge of it. And, and, and you and I can rest assured in a very satisfied way that he's working his purposes out in ways that are sometimes utterly beyond us. Beware of the person that says to you in the midst of your chaos, do you know someday you might understand this, you'll see what it all means. Someday you just might never will. There's just a lot of stuff going on in my life that I cannot make sense of and I certainly will not try to explain the mess in your lives. But keep trusting God. He's in charge. Jesus is in control of it. And he's also head of the church. Now having, in verse 18, having just made the assertion that Jesus is Lord of the entire universe, Paul now goes on to declare that, that Jesus, and, and please note that this is in addition to that, is head over everything to the church. 
As I thought about this this week, I thought surely it would have been enough to have concluded that since the church is made up of human beings, that it too is under the scope of Christ's universal lordship. Maybe, but I think that Paul wants you and me to understand something of far greater significance and something much more deeply profound than that. Followers of Jesus are in this world, but they are not of it. We are ruled by monarchs. Some Christians are ruled by despotic dictators. Some of us are ruled by democratically elected politicians. But we are citizens of a different kingdom. We may just think of ourselves as belonging to a form of established religious club. We're members of Charlotte Chapel, always have been. Our parents were before us. But you know what? If you're really a Christian, you're actually part of the new body of Jesus Christ on earth. You're part of the new body of Jesus Christ on earth. Jesus is Lord of creation, but Paul specifically, and with a different focus, says, and he is also head of the church. So let me boil it down like this for you. If you're a human being who doesn't believe in Jesus, then he is your Lord, whether you like it or not, because he's the Lord over the whole order of creation. And one day you will stand before him, and he will be your judge, and he will pass a sentence of condemnation on you because of your sin and your rebellion and your refusal to turn to him for salvation. But if you're a human being who has trusted Jesus as Savior, then one day you will stand before him as the one who is your head, with whom you already enjoy a submissive relationship as the one who leads and guides and orders your life. So by church here, Paul is, of course, not referring to any man-made or any man-run religious organization. He's talking about the gathered assembly, the congregation that is comprised solely of redeemed and ransomed sinners who have trusted Jesus as their Savior and have committed themselves to following him daily as their Lord. And as the new body of Jesus on earth, the church is, first of all, a living organism. It's comprised of individual members joined together through the finished work of Jesus. It's also a living witness, the only means whereby Jesus carries out the work that he did while he was here on earth. And the church is also already united with Jesus, raised up and seated with him in the heavenly Places. The union that exists between Jesus and the church is immediate uh, and it's real. And together the head and the body constitute one complete body. Uh, and I don't want to push this to extremists, but as that living unit, in one very real sense, the head is incomplete without the body and the body is incomplete without the head. So while Jesus is Lord of all the created order, there is a new creation going on here. When you become a Christian, you become a new creation. And Jesus is head over everything to the church that are made up of a whole lot of individual members who are being newly created. And since that's our inheritance, and the scale and the scope of Christ's supremacy on earth, why would we stop to even consider the pursuit of dead, inadequate religious forms, pagan rituals, godless philosophies, the observance of half-baked forms of Christianity that only has outward forms of godliness, but no power to curb our fallen sensual appetites. Why would we do that? Because we prefer some form of idolatry. 
to the living relationship with the supreme Christ. So maybe you're one of these people that has heard the gospel again and again and again, but never responded positively to its offer of salvation. Why? Why not do that now? Admit before the Son of God, the Lord of creation, the head of the church, that you're a sinner in need of his mercy and grace. Just drop your guard and give up your futile resistance. Let the Holy Spirit of God draw you towards the Savior. Whatever it is that's held you back, let it go and allow Jesus to have the full scope of supremacy in your life that he has died to gain on your behalf. And if you're not still convinced that he's sufficient for this, just look very briefly at the source of what he's offering you today. Verses 19 through 23, the source of Christ's supremacy. Remember at Jesus' baptism, Jesus came up out of the water. The voice of God in heaven was heard by those present on earth confirming the Son of God. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The bottom line is that Christ has unshared, unrivaled supremacy because God has decreed it. Jesus is supreme because God has said that's the way it is. John Calvin puts it like this. It is so arranged in the providence of God. For some people who, who, whose belief systems are outside that of, of a truly reformed faith, uh, some of you struggle with issues of providence and sovereignty of God in your life. The source of Christ's supremacy is the indwelling fullness of God, verse 19. It's a really difficult phrase to interpret. But let me just, again, boil it down to something like this. Having reference to the Son of God incarnation, in, in incarnation, the Father was pleased that Jesus should come with the whole treasury of divine grace, as one commentator puts it. Now, you see, the false teachers appear to have been saying something like, you need Jesus plus. You need Jesus plus horoscopes. You need Jesus plus mediums, plus angels, plus philosophy, plus religion, plus ritual. But Paul says, no, if all the fullness of God's riches are available to you in Jesus, why would you need to look elsewhere? God is the source. Jesus is God, so no need for any middlemen. Remember what Paul says in Acts 4 and 12? Sorry, Peter says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. The source of Christ's supremacy is God. But he is also supreme because of his own work in salvation. The, the reconciling work of Christ on the cross. I, you know, I think we often talk rather glibly about Jesus being the bridge between God and man. You've heard evangelists do it. You've heard pastors do it. Youth workers have done it. Jesus is the bridge that closes the gap between God and man. I've been troubled by that just this last week. You see, a bridge could simply suggest that there has been put in place a causeway. And isn't it just wonderful to think that if one day you or I decide to cross it and make peace with a benevolent, loving, divine parent who is longing for us to come home, then that would just be great. And warm and kindly as that illustration may appear, I think it completely misses the true reality of what took place in eternity and also in space and time 2,000 years ago in Palestine and continues to take place today, awaiting the return of Jesus to come to earth for his bride. Look at verse 20. 
See what I mean by this. Peace could only be made with an angry God through the shedding of Jesus' blood. God is angry at sinners, not just at sin. He's angry at those who have been estranged from him and drifted away from him. And the idea that somehow that just Jesus is a bridge that you and I could decide one day to turn and walk over, I think misses the point of the supremacy of Jesus. Look again at verses 21 through 22. And I'll paraphrase this for you as Donald did earlier. We were once alienated from God and were enemies because of our evil behavior. We were enemies. We weren't lost sheep friends that somehow God was looking for. We were enemies of God because of our evil behavior. But now because of what Jesus has suffered and experienced in his physical body, in our stead, in place of us, we can legally, we can literally be viewed as being holy, blameless and free from accusation, whether real or false. That's not just a bridge. It's changing our enmity to friendship. It's changing our hostility and rebellion to submission and cooperation. It's to reconcile the irreconcilable. It's to pardon the unpardonable. It's as Paul says elsewhere in Romans 5, 6 following, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we now rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's not a bridge. That's the gospel. And it's the gospel that saves you once you put your sole trust in the sufficiency of Christ's absolute supremacy as the only Savior approved of by God and purely unable, purely and singularly on the basis of what he did himself to save you from your sin and if you continue and don't give up or get led astray by false doctrine and teaching. The gospel of Jesus is Jesus plus nothing and no one else. Do you know, in the church today, we still believe in Jesus. We still talk about Jesus. We still follow aspects of what Jesus taught us. And he may be prominent, but you know, he's definitely not preeminent in the church. He may not be denied just quite yet, but he has been dethroned. Matt Redman sings, Take the world, but give me Jesus. You're the treasure of this life. Take the world, but give me Jesus is my cry. From a former period of church history, one of the Wesleyan hymns, the hymn, Jesus, lover of my soul, in that we find these words, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in thee I find. 
It's a challenge today, isn't it? Take the world, give me Jesus. Thou, O Christ, art all I want. Nothing, nothing, nothing but Jesus. The sole focus of what your heart desires today. Our final hymn, Who Can Cheer the Heart Like Jesus, talks about the relationship that Christians have with their Savior and Lord, both in this life and the one that is to come. And I trust that it is your confidence and experience that you can honestly say, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. Let's